The unofficial end to summer is here. School has started for most, football season is upon us, and soon the leaves will be changing color. At the DSR Network, we remain as busy as ever with a full slate of podcasts scheduled for the fall. In the coming weeks, we'll be launching two new shows with new hosts, creating even more content for our members. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, bonus content, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of September, you'll receive 20% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SCHOOL at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SCHOOL. Thank you for your support. Hi, I'm Riley Fessler, producer of the DSR Network of Podcasts. This week's episode of From the Silo comes from September 2022, where Norman Kavita discussed the intersection of foreign and domestic policy, as well as several other issues that we're still feeling the effects of today. The episode also features originally members-only content, so if you want more like this every week, please become a member. Enjoy. This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. Reaching this deal is really, really big. And Dr. Kavita Patel. That's what the United States does. Hello and welcome to Words Matter from the DSR Network. Each week, Norm Ornstein and I will talk about the issues facing our country as we head into the midterms and what our leaders are saying and doing about them. So today we've got an action-packed podcast, more than usual. We're going to try to hit a number of topics. Uh, We wanted to cover just a touch on the railroad strike, railroad workers strike, and just some of the recent developments. Also want to hit on a number of international matters. Certainly Ukraine and Russia dominate the international headlines, but there are so many forces globally that are affecting anybody's day-to-day lives, even without them realizing. And then finally, in our bonus content, we'll spend some time talking about this incredible debate, literally and figuratively, between Fetterman and Oz, the candidates for the United States Senate in Pennsylvania, and how that is turning out to be a bit of a cluster for a lot of reasons that have most of it to do with Mehmet Oz and some of it to do with the media coverage of Oz and Fetterman. So with that, let's get started, Norm. I think there's so many things that are happening. And we recently spoke with one of your colleagues, Michael Strain, just about the economic outlook overall and touched on a number of labor issues. But that has really come to a boil with just recent, not only threats around a railroad strike for workers, especially operators, engineers, which would literally bring the country's transit to a halt, not just of people, but of the products, and of a reprieve. And and I'll just offer, I'm curious to all extent on your take on this, I will just offer, um, having worked on labor issues in the Senate for Ted Kennedy, when I read about what some of the basic concerns were, that is that operators and engineers outside of like paid time off, which they only had a certain number of weeks, that they were expected to be 24-7 on call, and that if they didn't show up on call, they had a point system, which is actually what many large employers have moved to, where points would be deducted for them to not show up when they had less than even two hours notice to, to show up for work on an emergency basis. It actually reminded me we, we, there are many things about medicine that are quite cruel and still exist that should not. 
this is actually one of those things that we gave up a long time ago. We knew that it wasn't humane for the patients or for the clinicians to actually expect people to take 24-7 call. And so here you have like what would be just basic human common sense. And that was just one of several, but I think one of the main issues. Norm, tell listeners your take on this. So the first thing is that having discussed the economy with Mike Strain, that if we did have a rail strike that lasted for any length of time, especially as you alluded to, because of the supply chain issues, it would have been a devastating blow to the economy and it would have had a big impact on November and the elections. I just sort of got bemused this morning because the Wall Street Journal put up an editorial saying, where is Joe Biden when it comes to rail strike right before we had this deal achieved? And you've got to give credit to Biden, to Pete Buttigieg, the Secretary of Transportation, and obviously to all of the other actors involved for settling this. And as you say, Kavita, it's not just a simple labor issue of we want more money or we want more health benefits. It really was the fundamentals of the quality of life. And that includes getting sick leave and being able to take it without being punished for it. I think reaching this deal is really, really big. It's big for the rail system. It's big for the economy. It's big for Biden. It's big for Democrats. Uh, One just before we kind of get into a very global place, which by the way, this exact commentary fits in quite nicely because it fits into this like post-pandemic global environment. I'm just curious because I saw that Wall Street Journal article and it, you, I think you and I have probably personally ridden on the Amtrak when Joe Biden, then Senator Biden, you know, and even Vice President Biden and, and probably not as often President Biden, you know, takes incredible pride. But it's very interesting because I think labor unions and the labor movements have really evolved. And in the last even, I would say, decade, We have seen much less of what I was familiar with, which were, to your point, it was pay. It was these very kind of traditional, almost playbook of here are the issues we have to push on employers on. Here's how unions really represent this. But I think that you'll see Marty Walsh and then a number of other, Pete Buttigieg, as you mentioned, is there's almost a new era to what labor in this new post-pandemic world even looks like. And I think one of the points that this has brought up is flexibility. I mean, it was very rare in any workplace, much less a unionized labor environment, that you thought about family balance, flexibility. And it's it's interesting to me, especially such a male-dominated, I think I tried to look up exactly how many female railroad engineers there are. I mean, it's, it's in the single digits. In fact, they even refer to them as brothers of the railway, et cetera. So I think that there's just this very The world of what labor markets look like and how employers need to respond is just different. And I do think it's something that we're going to have to, it's not a post-pandemic flash. I think this is here to stay. And I hope that we see more of this dialogue brought forward. We may be seeing at least tiny bit of a renaissance for labor unions, which would be enormously significant uh, for the economy and for the quality of life that people have. It's been an enormous deterioration in union strength and in unions more generally. The tight labor market maybe creates a little bit of a different reality. And I think also with the tight labor market, you're seeing workers realize that they've got leverage that they didn't have before, and they don't have to put up with a lot of the crap that they have. And there's a greater willingness. We're seeing this in a whole lot of places to organize. 
And overall, I just find that a very positive development for the economy. And of course, we know that if Republicans take back power, one of the first things they're going to do is try and devastate unions. That actually you can count on. That is a bit of a playbook. So then let's get to, I think, where we were hoping to spend a decent amount of time talking about, I think we know that on Words Matter, we're really trying to bring issues and especially in the forefront of midterms, elections, be they local, regional, federal. But I think that many of us, myself included, sometimes take, you know, we're listening to the news or reading the news and we see these reports. Certainly the Ukraine, Russia, I mean, if I had to put my bets on where we would be right now with Russia and Ukraine, I will say I was very hopeful we would be where we are today, but I did not expect to see not only the resilience of Ukraine, which was also, by the way, I think leveraged by additional countries into NATO, and then certainly on our kind of sister, our brother podcast, uh, Deep State Radio, we, we can count on David Rothkopf getting into this. This is his backyard. But I don't know if people quite have processed, and, and Norm, I'd love to hear your thoughts about, I've tried to explain to people why it matters, why what we did in the United States for Ukraine or what we didn't do really matters kind of locally and, and the politics that play out domestically. We certainly have hit on supply chain, but I think that climate issues, labor force in general, I, there's so much that I've discovered in terms of even, and, and Norm, this is something that is near and dear to my heart. Clinical trials all around the world basically came to a halt when COVID started and then kind of slowly tentatively picked back up kind of in the recovery phase. Much of our manufacturing, much of our clinical trial sites as well go on in, in the EU and also China. In fact, there is an over-reliance on manufacturing in China by companies that are incredibly well-subsidized or even headquartered in the United States. Everything about Russia, Ukraine, China, and geo-relations changed that. And so we're seeing now a drawback across uh, cancer treatment and, and research portfolios, still about like 25 to 30% down in research. And this is not research that you can just kind of move from one country to another easily. It comes with personnel. Then that gets me to the second point, which is the effect of literally taking out a part of a population, including the mothers, including the children, including the caregivers. And that has had also, interestingly enough, some commentators from the UN and others have made the observation that that will be more devastating than the global pandemic, where we know we've had obviously such a loss of life. So your thoughts and maybe how can you help listeners connect dots between kind of the words that really matter and what's happening internationally and domestically? Just a, a couple of broader observations. I remember well back when we viewed the Soviet Union as this incredible juggernaut was going to overtake us. And my friend and mentor, the late lamented Daniel Patrick Moynihan, was in the forefront of saying, it's not like that, they're going to collapse. And what we saw was, it really was, and the term applies so vividly, a Potemkin village in a lot of ways. Now it's back as Russia, and we viewed it as this juggernaut. And what we're seeing and we can get to the role that the U.S. has played and what it means more broadly, is that it was another corrupt, hollow regime with a military that was supposed to be the second best in the world, that is mediocre at best, and has collapsed under the weight of all of this. 
And that's interesting. Now, what's also interesting and challenging domestically is I've seen these surveys. The first month or so of the war, Americans were paying enormously close attention. And the cable news networks were almost 24-7 on Ukraine and Russia. It's dropped to almost nothing. None. None. I've had to, I actually spent uh, eight hours kind of trying to, kind of preparing for today, actually trying to take a stock. And there were some shows that mentioned it on um, MSNBC, but it was a total of about 15 minutes. It's 15 minutes compared to 150 hours on the Queen. And that's a danger, of course. You know, it's losing interest is one thing. It may make it more difficult for us to continue to provide the equipment that we need to where it can make an enormous difference. We have to give kudos to both Zelensky and the Ukraine military, which has been extraordinarily well prepared for this, strategically has been just awesome in what they've been able to do. And they, their soldiers, seeing these scenes on video of their troops liberating villages, of a soldier going to his mother, whose village he just liberated, it's just amazing and heartwarming. But of course, we also know that this breakthrough came not just because of their strategic brilliance and the Russians' stupidity or corruptness or the way in which they've structured things where it's leadership from the top down and they have no flexibility, but it's also the weapons that we've provided that have turned the tide here. And we have to keep providing those uh, weapons. One other very, I think what might be a very positive development from this, and I'll credit David Rothkopf for mentioning this, we're heading toward the winter. What Russia's done in the past is to try and break European resolve by shutting off the oil and gas. And it's now become apparent is that for the first time, the Europeans have been jogged into changing this, getting alternative energy sources preparing themselves for what the Russians will do. And that not only will head off the possibility of some of the European countries deciding that they no longer want to back Ukraine the same way they have, but also it will break the back of Russia's energy policy. And now that we've built in pricing, for which we can also give some kudos to the way the Biden administration has negotiated with other countries, It's going to make Russia, which relies so heavily on their energy revenues, in even bigger trouble. All of this is good for the United States, not only in foreign relations, but because we've now begun to repair some of those supply chains. We've had at least one deal where we're getting grain and fuel coming out through the ports there. The Ukrainians are getting closer to being able to free up ports to be able to do it on their own. That has a positive impact on food prices. We've seen it with gas prices. The caution we need to add here is we don't have a clue as to how Putin will react to what is now horrific losses, losing territory, losing equipment, losing troops. For him, to double down on this, that means moving to a full-scale draft means losing the public. We also don't know whether the Kremlin itself facing this humiliation will decide to take some action. A Putin backed up into a corner is something we have to be a little bit worried about. 
But, you know, putting that to the side, this is immensely significant and extraordinarily positive for us as a country and for the ability to get things back on track. And it's got to have an impact, I should add, on China. That's why I brought up China as well. It's 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 absolutely had an impact on China. And I'll I'm going to do two things, Norm. Just your I'm picking up on your point about kind of things recovering. Grain shipments recently have kind of gathered pace, and in July, basically, the UN, Ukraine, Russia, Turkey, all had to kind of hammer out some sort of agreement at that time, just because of Russia's blockade of those Black Sea ports which were so critical. This is just, again, like, how does this, you know, most Americans don't think about this because it's just too vast to think about. The blockade of those seaports had created such a, just a run up on food prices and also kind of psychological fear about the hunger for where those ports were headed, which is the Middle East and Africa. And it created such a demand that not only did it have, and I think this is where getting back to like, kind of the words that matter, you know, we, we, you and I have spoken about some misconceptions, like it's Joe Biden who's responsible for the gas prices, and it's Joe Biden who's responsible for the bread being more expensive. It was very easy to kind of blame. And certainly, I have a gut feeling knowing Joe Biden that he feels like everything is in some way his fault, (laughs) because that's the kind of man he is. But I think that it's, it's necessary to think this starts with, you know, blocking seaports to Middle East and Africa, right? There was an interview in the Post, and I think just to your point about crediting Zelensky, if you had said to me before February of this year, you know, hey, here's this guy with this Netflix comedy show, and you know, he's you know he's the leader of Ukraine, and like you know, what what are the chances that he would emerge not only like this international kind of figure of all things that we kind of think of with humanity and humanitarian efforts? but will literally be the person that could topple Putin. He would not have been the person I put, you know, any money on at all. And I, and I want to say, like, just I'm reading his words from a post interview where they had a chance to talk to him several weeks ago. And, and they asked, uh, what was your lowest moment or the one that moved you the most? And he wrote, we had, or he answered, we had people lying in the corridors. There were people everywhere, snipers, different people. He's describing Buka in February 2022. We basically lived here. We had no electricity. We walked with flashlights. With these flashlights, we worked. You can get used to it all, but what you can't get used to is when after this storm, when the shots are all fired and all that is left is the destruction. We saw corpses left on roads, bombed houses. You're looking at it, and only in that moment the realization comes. Before it, that it was all a battle, but only then that moment of consciousness comes of what is happening, what they have done, that irreversibility that isn't possible to go back. All the talk about a peaceful settlement from the Russian side, that all this is a lie. And of course, as a civilized person, you can understand that, well, of course, in the future, these countries will someday agree on something. But you have to understand that this is the abyss and corpses of Ukrainians have fallen into this abyss. And every time you want to walk across or jump over this abyss and agree on something, you'll see these people who are killed. So I, I think it's, uh, it just, it, to me, what I was kind of just scrolling through news and kind of reading that, to your point, Norm, I, you know, you have to kind of go back to February and remember that 24-7 coverage and those images. But I think Zelensky sum, summarized it well. Like, we can talk about peace. We can talk about opening ports. We can talk about Americans finally being able to get, you know, grain and access in other countries as well. But like, 
none of that is going to reverse, you know, the destruction. And and it also made me pause and think about how many times over these scenarios have happened that aren't getting coverage. We did have a, this has come up before. We've had many kind of examples of genocide where we have chosen to, it's not important because it's not a country that matters. It isn't as powerful of a country. It's not people who look like us. And I think that um, to me, in a very naive way, you could say, but I'd love your reaction to this. When I think about the issues with voting rights and like why representation matters, it translates back to this. Like in the world, we're all trying to make sure that like those corpses, those moments, and in the United States, it's black men and women who died in order to have rights for this generation. It's women who went through so much harassment and denial so that others could have it. It's all the same. And and it's kind of, for me, an even more like just very clarifying, like this is like a calling for this moment, this time to come forward just to civilize people and stand up, you know, stand up against it. So uh, I want to reflect on a historical moment that has great relevance. When Harry Truman ran for president in 1948, He ran successfully against the do-nothing Congress. It was a Republican Congress. The fact is that Congress gave us the Marshall Plan, and that was a visionary moment for Harry Truman and uh, General Marshall, and it was extraordinary. We were in the aftermath of a war. We wanted to devote ourselves to domestic considerations. We poured a huge sum of money into reconstructing the devastation from our enemies. And you would be hard-pressed to find something more significant in creating the stability and prosperity of the post-war world. Now, what's likely to be, even as of today, a $600 billion bill to rebuild Ukraine, because Putin has basically, as you said, just leveled cities, devastated the infrastructure. Much of that burden is going to come to Europe, but not all of it. We are going to need another Marshall Plan. Now, a lot of the Republicans in Congress at that point had been isolationists, but they understood. And in the aftermath of the war, they basically stepped up to the plate. If we have a Republican House next year, a house dominated by Jim Jordan and the Freedom Caucus. They may very well first shut down the government, very possibly including the Defense Department, making it impossible for us to continue to provide weapons to Ukraine, which could mean a turnaround in this war. But it's hard for me to imagine them doing anything in a positive way if this war is over and we need. For our purposes, the Marshall Plan helped Europe. It helped rebuild that work for us as well. It's what built the prosperity that we had as well. We need to do this, and it's going to take an enormous leadership challenge to make that happen. And it's one of the reasons why a Republican Congress in the next two years would be devastating for the world, but devastating for America as well. It's something we're going to talk about and come back to, I think, over and over again 
but it has real world implications for what we're dealing with here. I think there's this like sense in America, kind of this, it's, it's everything about America first that is negative in, in, in those aspects of, well, we shouldn't be, we, there shouldn't be a single dollar that kind of leaves our borders and we're doing too much when we have our own who need it, when people don't really understand how much of this is inextricably linked and how other countries, to your point, have played a role in recovery. Nobody thinks about kind of American recovery, but not, not only through depression, recessions, and all sorts of kind of in-between periods uh, that this has been of utmost importance. And then I like to remind people, foreign policy is not my strength, but what I learned in kind of being around and in the midst of certain foreign policy issues in the government was how much when we think about our presence, not just not just embassies and workers that Americans who are working in global organizations, but our military presence and how how essential it was very clear to me when we start to think about Ukraine and Russia and the geo kind of political spillover it's had. It absolutely affects Americans in so many tangible ways. And I so those same same Republican Congress, it's interesting. Often Republicans are always like happy to kind of put increased appropriations on defense. But this is the same, I have to remind people, this is the same kind of Republicans, both Senate and House, where voting to protect veterans against the toxicity of fire pits and so much of what we don't do to protect people after they've literally thrown their lives in front of others to save to save people who are not from the United States because that's what that's what the United States does. It's uh, it's it's incredible. We'll close this out because we want to get to some bonus content on uh, our favorite Senate race in Pennsylvania. But before we do that, I just want to thank everyone for joining to joining us, listening to us, and if possible. We would love to have you rate, review, subscribe to the feed. We also hope you can share this episode to your friends, both on social media and word of mouth is great too. If you've liked this and want more of our conversation and want to get some of our exclusive member only content, then become a member. It's even cheaper than most of your fall pumpkin lattes uh, every month. And you can get this bonus segment where Norm and I are going to talk about the Fetterman Oz countdown to the Senate race. Words Matter is a production of the DSR Network. Our executive producer is Chris Cotmore, and the producer of the show is Grant Haper. And our next episode will be in your podcast feeds on September 23rd. See you then. Welcome to the members only section. And uh, Norm and I are going to pick up on something that I was a little surprised. I got. I was. Re- I, I had two very, very senior political reporters reach out to me in the last twenty-four hours to just talk through some of the actual medical information, or kind of my interpretation as a medical doctor of what has evolved in the what feels like a bit of the never-ending saga of where in the world is John Fetterman's medical status. John Fetterman is a reminder. I think it goes without saying that the. The kind of sheer humor that the Mehmet Oz Twitter feeds between the Fetterman campaign and just campaigns in general has been nothing short of amusing. But I think that something that caught my eye, Norm, and I'm just going to read from a, a, just a piece of it, was from the editorial board of the Washington Post on September 12th, Monday's Washington Post editorial board, where they decided to actually focus attention on the need for Fetterman to have more debates. 
And it had critically much to do with his quote, seemingly been reluctant to, this is from the, op- from the editorial page, Mr. Fetterman has been reluctant to commit to firm debate dates. And that troubling stance has raised questions about whether he's still recovering from a serious stroke as fit to serve in the Senate. And then they go on to say, since returning to the campaign trail, Mr. Fetterman has been halting in his performances. He stammers, appears confused, and keeps his remarks short. He has held no news conferences. He acknowledges his difficulties with auditory processing, which make it hard for him to respond quickly to what he is hearing. He receives speech therapy, and we wish him a speedy full recovery. But the lingering unanswered questions about his health underscored by his hesitation to debate are unsettling. And it goes on to talk a little bit about uh, the actual kind of picture with uh, what has happened with Fetterman. And I think that just for background, I think a lot of this started with what feels like an incredible lack of transparency and actually confounding, confusing information about what his health status was, even in the like immediate kind of days after the stroke. And it essentially, I did a kind of a time clock norm. It took weeks to kind of get a bit more of the medical picture, which all of us, like, so I'm trained as an internist and I do a ton of work with post-stroke cardiac patients, people who've had heart failure diagnoses, a lot of atrial fibrillation, that's bread and butter to us. Speaking with my cardiology colleagues and some surgeons, we were all kind of puzzled and said, this does not add up the way that a campaign has kind of given us details. And they chose to actually bring doctors to make public statements from the past that were not related to a stroke care about conditions he had. And it just didn't make any sense. I think that that was the genesis of where these seeds of confusion and doubt. But what's fascinating to me, I'm surprised that the Post's editorial board chose that venue to make a statement that essentially is, hey, we think we need another debate because we're not sure what's going on with you medically. And it reminded me of not just Tim Johnson. It actually reminded me of Ted Kennedy because I had much more personal experience with that. When he, when I was working for him and he was diagnosed with advanced glioblastoma, the cancer itself was located so preciously close, this tumor in his brain, so close to his speech center. And could you imagine Ted Kennedy without being able to speak? There was a very critical, we actually had to bring Senator Kennedy back. You might recall, Norm, for that incredibly critical Medicare vote for which he was, you know, it was, it was literally one of those moments where he was going through um, he had had surgery at Duke, was going through convalescing care in Massachusetts, and they needed him for his floor vote. And so there was a truly, and this is all public, um, there's, there, it had so many shades of that where I kept thinking, yes, his campaign should have been more forthcoming, but I am not sure how people are drawing a direct line to he is not you know, mentis compass, competent to actually carry out the duties of a senator, which really troubles me a little bit, but I'm very curious, Norm, both your thoughts, your observations, um, and just how we, you know, how would you handle this? Because I know you give advice to campaigns. What should the Fetterman campaign do at this point now that there's been so much attention to this issue? Well, first, I think you're absolutely right, Kavita, that they brought some of this on themselves. And it would have been so much better if they had been completely transparent. And that includes what you know, which is if you suffer a stroke of this sort, it can take a sizable period of time before you're back to normal. With every reason to believe you will be back to normal. What we saw with Tim Johnson, what we saw with Mark Kirk is precisely that. It took a long time. 
Sometimes, as we had with Ben Ray Lujan, it can be a short period. Now, having said that, if you're running ahead in a Senate campaign, you and you're running against a guy who steps on his foot, to put it nicely, over and over and over again. And you're running, your campaign is running a brilliant social media campaign to point that out. If you are absolutely perfect in your health, you have zero reason to want to do a bunch of debates. I can guarantee you that if Mehmet Oz were running ahead and John Fetterman were the guy putting his foot in his mouth over and over again, that Oz would find all kinds of excuses not to debate and we would never see a Washington Post editorial. That editorial also, of course, was ahistorical. I mean, if you're going to express those concerns, you should have been writing editorials saying maybe Mark Kirk or Tim Johnson should resign. So I did not find the editorial to be particularly elucidating. What we know is now we've seen more honesty out of Fetterman, a little bit more where he's talking about the auditory processing issues where he's postponing a debate until late in the campaign. And, you know, it's quite possible that he won't be in great shape and that it will be a problem for him. And it could be a problem for him in part because uh, Mehmet Oz may be a physician, but what he is most adept at is selling snake oil on television. Having said that, he is substance-free. And when you look at what he says about issues, it's just embarrassing. So Oz could embarrass himself as well. But at this point, the idea that you need more debates with a guy who's struggling with some of the issues that happened to a serious stroke victim, knowing that the odds are extraordinarily high that he will recover fully, I just did not find anything compelling in that post uh, editorial, anything that would make me sign on to the idea that what you really want is to have more debates. Just to your point, and what I failed to kind of point out, you mentioned the auditory processing, depending on where the stroke is, I mean, the brain is just an incredibly, incredibly intricate kind of organ. And depending on where a stroke is, it can affect the speech center, kind of where you kind of, and that's, that can be different than auditory processing. So for example, you and I can have a conversation, I can understand everything that you're saying to me, but then the words coming out of my mouth are nonsensical. There's so many complexities, not just around strokes, but kind of how, and what I worry about is that we have enough stigma on people who actually do have, because of strokes, because of tumors, because of all sorts of things, auditory processing or speech disorders. And again, I think the seed was, these seeds were planted with the lack of transparency but to send a signal like, no, no, we don't know if you're okay. So we're going to go ahead and put you through this process that we know you still are recovering through. And what is the response supposed to be, you know, out of the Fetterman campaign? Yeah, sure. I'll step aside because I'm trying to go ahead and do what, by the way, millions of Americans have had to try to figure out to do, which is go through recovery, go through rehab, and also conduct their lives. And to think that that is compromised, especially now after January 6th and what we've learned about what Donald Trump was saying and doing during those moments. 
I could argue with another physician that those are criteria for a psychiatric hold. I mean, there were there are numbers of times where you could argue that this person had a problem processing emotion, that this person had like a personality disorder that could be injurious to others, which is exactly what I say would have happened. But yet there was no op-ed or editorial board article about that. And I think there's, uh, I don't think this is going to be the last that we hear out of this uh, Fetterman-Oz issue, because it is not something that will recover in the next 24 hours. So I do think we'll be coming back to it. I ultimately think Fetterman will reign and hopefully take the election as we've all seen that he's doing progressively. But, you know, still, still a decent amount of time between here and November. One more question for you, Norm. I'm curious. I think you've seen not just kind of the reaction from Democrats, Republicans. There's been a number of people who were critical of the Post. But then, unfortunately, a number of Democrats who also said, yeah, we think that, you know, if he, he should come out and make a statement and offer another debate, what would you do if you were advising the campaign? Where, what would you do now? Debate, there, he's in a corner in a little bit, but would you just say ignore it, move forward? Or would you actually kind of concede? Would you argue he needs a better statement to be more transparent? What would you do? What I would like to see happen is for Fetterman to appear with a few doctors who are really adept at explaining the nature of strokes not to do a full-fledged press conference where he answers questions where all of these things would be an issue. And maybe he doesn't even have to be there. But something that talks about the trajectory of this particular stroke, why in terms of a six-year term in the Senate, it is not something to be deeply concerned about that would try and take the health issue to a different place. So that when he does appear and he's halting and he doesn't, he has to reach for words or he needs um, a closed caption thing because the auditory part isn't working so well, that it's not going to uh, be taken to DEFCON 1 by uh, a lot of uh, actors. You know, having said that, I would just say the last thing more broadly, the stakes in this election are so high that it, it, you don't. Of course, I don't want the Washington Post in its editorial page or in its news columns or anybody else to be a partisan actor or a cheerleader. But you have to be very careful about what stories you want to emphasize. And every time you do a story, you have to step back and say, is this a story that's just business as usual, as if this weren't a particularly significant election? And if we're going to look at the health issues of John Fetterman, How about looking at the suitability of a snake oil salesman, his opponent, to be a senator? You know, you have to just weigh how you're going to run stories and what you're going to do more carefully than I think we've seen in the past. I couldn't have said it better. I I loved uh, your thought, though, of getting uh, just at least like setting the kind of level of, you know, here's, here's what's happening, but also using it as a teaching moment because it is shining a light. I will say, correct. Credit where credit is due. I had more people curious about what is atrial fibrillation and what you know what happens after a stroke. So I think that's actually a good thing for the world overall. But to your point, the media's role in kind of glamorizing or making a salacious case out of this 
and not thinking about it from a very broad perspective. It quite frankly surprised me, actually. I don't often think of the post-editorial page as one where I'm expecting to see this. So that's why it's something I wanted to talk about this week. But well, thank you, Norm. And thank you so much to Mehmet Oz for, I I can only hope is going to be some ongoing humor at the cost of all the poor people who pose with him in these pictures. I I can't uh, get enough of some of the social media. It actually is pretty, pretty hilarious, um, including the Oz picture signs that then get turned into no, 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 with like him standing right there, which is my favorite. Well, that is another uh, members only episode for our very, very favorite members. We're always happy to have you. Please talk to your friends and convince them to join so they can be in on the conversation. And we'll talk to you next week.